Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them, and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement, and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In today's episode, I speak to Joe Omani, Professor of Management Consulting at Cardiff University and CEO of Consulting Mastered. Joe has had a hugely wide-ranging career that's seen him go from academia into consulting and back again with a number of additional entrepreneurial ventures along the way. With such a varied career and a unique mix of both practical and academic experience, Joe has a huge amount to share and gives so much in today's interview. When I say that Joe wrote the book on management consulting, I mean it very literally. His textbook, Management Consultancy, is the leading academic resource on our industry and is used by universities across the world to teach their students about consulting. But Joe's focus is much more than just the academic side of our industry. Through his business, Consulting Mastered, he's advised a whole range of consultancies, from boutiques to global leaders, on how they can improve their organizations to help them grow effectively. Insights that he's currently building into his latest book and something that we go into detail on in today's show. We cover so many different facets of the industry in today's conversation, and there really is something for everyone in this one. From Joe's top tips for graduates looking to land their first job in consulting, through to the key insights from his upcoming book on what separates 
successful boutique consulting firms from their less successful peers. I found this conversation fascinating, and it was great to get Joe's perspective as someone who truly knows all of the ins and outs of the consulting industry. Now, just before you go on to the interview, it's worth saying, because I'm sure you'll notice, we had a few technical hiccups. The audio quality is not quite as good as some of our previous interviews. And as I know, you've come to know and love for climbing consulting. Unfortunately, these things happen, but please do not let that detract from the fantastic interview that you're about to hear and all of the great advice that Joe shares in this conversation. So whether you are a consulting leader focused on how you can take your business to the next level, or you are a graduate looking to make your first steps into the industry, I know you are going to get so much from what Joe has to say. So with the intro over, all that's left to say is please sit back, relax, and enjoy today's conversation with Joe Omani. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I'm really looking forward to our chat, Joe. Obviously, we've known each other a little while. And for those who don't know, and we'll talk about it on today's show, you literally wrote the book on management consulting. So well, I, I think David nice to beat me to it, but um, but I, I have <laughs> written a I've written a couple of books now on consulting, with the third out next year. Well, I know we're going to talk about your third book and you know, offline as well. I'd love to get your advice because part of me would love to turn this series into a book and I've not got the faintest idea where to start. Well, so I'm happy to. We'll, we'll catch up on that. But for those who don't know you, and I know you've listened to the podcast, so you'll be expecting this first question. It'd be great just to get an overview on who you are and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Okay. So currently I am, I'm CEO of Consulting Masters, which is a consultancy to help consultants. Um, especially small and medium-sized consultancies grow and be more profitable. I'm also a professor of consulting at Cardiff Business School, which is an odd title. I think I'm perhaps one of maybe two in the world that have that title, which doesn't mean a vast amount because once you're a professor, you can pretty much choose your own title. And I thought I'd name it after what I do. I started, I guess, after my after my doctorate or during my doctorate, I did a fair bit of consultancy. I didn't mean to. I didn't even know it was consultancy. But the companies I was studying asked me to help them with various things. Initially, I thought of doing it free of charge. And then, then one of them was, was kind enough to say, Joe, look, you should really be charging for this. So I, it was a steep learning curve for me. So I was doing, I cut my teeth on medium-sized manufacturing firms, really looking at uh, change and what was then called uh, total quality management, business process re-engineering. That ages me, although not much has changed in, in, in reality, of course. After the doctorate, I became a consultant with a company called Zanta, who I think were eventually taken over by Serco, but they were an IT consultancy that wanted to develop a strategy and change consulting arm. And I didn't really know a vast amount about it, but it sounded quite exciting and interesting. So there I cut my teeth in more corporate consultancy. After a couple of years, I was approached by one of the clients, um, you know, three, the mobile phone company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, when they bought their 3G license, they literally had a piece of paper saying uh, we can broadcast 3G, 3G. They had no company. They had no systems. They had no network, et cetera. So I was taken on as the person that would, I guess, be responsible for the design of the organization, design of the business processes, and uh, certainly on the products and digital side. 
which to be honest was <laughs> way above my pay grade, but they didn't know that because initially I was in as a consultant and this this shows you how peculiar it was. My my boss contacted me on Boxing Day, I think 2000, and said, Joe, what do you know about 3G Telco? And I said, nothing, because nobody knew anything about 3G Telco because it didn't exist. And he said, well, I've, I've, written your, <laughs> I've rewritten your CV and I've sent it in and uh, you're, you're now an expert on 3G and you've got an interview tomorrow morning in, in stains of all places. Now, of course, these days I would say, well, I'm not going. But then I was quite naive and ambitious and thought, well, I can pull this off. So much to my family's dismay, I stayed up all night studying 3G, had the interview the next day and then got taken on in quite a senior role. Fortunately, if I have any skill, it's around learning quickly. Mm. So I, I, I loved it. I mean, we were designing a multi-billion pound company from scratch. It was ridiculously hard work, 14-hour days. I eventually became, in effect, head of internal consultancy. And from there, um, once 3 was launched, I'm not particularly interested in sort of managing the, the plateau, you know, when things mm. are, are operational. So then I left and did a bit of contracting around 3G strategy for quite a few different clients and firms. And I decided to... We can't go back to academia and had to start at the bottom. And my God, the, the, <laughs> the shift in salary was uh, was shocking. I think I, I had to reduce my salary by 75 percent, wow. um, excluding bonus and all of that malarkey. So <laughs> so it was a bit of a shock. But I, I you know, we, we might go into the reasons for that later. But so I started at the bottom and then worked my way up to professor which is primarily done through publications. Because I came from the consulting industry, the business schools were very interested in me teaching consultancy because obviously all the students wanted to go and work for McKinsey. So I kind of did that as a favor. I started teaching consultancy. There were no decent textbooks around at the time. So after about five years, I contacted Oxford University Press and asked if they would be interested in textbooks, which they said yes. But there was very there were a few things out there, but not a vast amount. Mm. The textbook did really well. I don't mean financially, obviously, because there's no money in in that type of thing. But it was used by at some point three quarters of all business schools that were teaching consultancy firms. Wow, uh, consulting skills. And so I started I started getting into the consultancy research for better or worse. I still do other bits and pieces. I write on philosophy a lot. And that is where I am now. So I was made prof a couple of years ago. I guess I've always had the entrepreneurial side. So I started a manufacturing company in 2003, which I sold in 2007. I started Repair Cafe Wales three or four years ago, which is the fastest growing nonprofit in Wales. It's quite an exclusive category. And then a couple of years ago, I started Consulting Mastered to help small consultancies grow. Brilliant overview and so much for us to dive into. And as is always the way, I don't know if we'll be able to do it all in the short time we have, but I want to pick up on a whole load of things. And I'm, I'm not going to ask immediately, but yeah, the return to academia and, and how you made yourself comfortable from a salary perspective, making that jump and, and the why I'm fascinated in, the, the manufacturing business I'm fascinated in. But Maybe we start with, because there's a few points, and again, I, I try and channel some of my listeners in this, is 
you obviously did your PhD before going into industry. And my limited knowledge of academia, so so correct me by the way if this is wrong, is actually that's a fairly well-trodden path, sort of that's your gateway into becoming an academic. So you would do your PhD and then you'd stay on as a, a junior researcher and, and build from there. What led you to keep going to that extent of study? And then what made you decide to jump out into industry? Because it, you know, it's not a prerequisite for consulting, but I'm interested, why was it you chose that path? Okay, so that's a really good question. In terms of why I stayed on for the PhD, I, I, to be honest, in, in my last year at Oxford, I got very ill. Okay. Um, I was doing ancient and modern history at Oxford. And in those days, 100% of the exam was over a four-day period at the end of your third year. Wow. Um, unfortunately, for these six months coming up to that and including that period, I was very ill and couldn't really do any work and all the rest of it. So I not only came out with a degree that I wasn't happy with, um, I believe it's called a Desmond in a, for, for amongst a certain age group, but also, I wasn't really in a state to go into the workplace. It wasn't, and I mean, it was basically ME. And I was just exhausted, and I, I I physically couldn't get out of bed to uh, to take my exam. So, so that's really why I stayed on to do the masters. And with the master stage, I thought, well, I'm going to do something in business uh, mm. to get a job. I'm clearly not going to be Indiana Jones as I hoped. And the the great thing about Oxford, I mean, I came from a fairly rough secondary school that sort of wasn't a public school and was a comprehensive. And I hadn't been taught the basics of, you know, how to how to write and all the rest of it. The great thing about Oxford was I was taught to write. I wasn't mm. taught to write, but I was taught to write. And and because of that, I came top on this sort of masters in industrial relations. Not because I was the brightest, because I wasn't by a long stretch, but because I knew how to write. And then because of that I was offered funding to do a PhD. And I was having a great time as a student. I was doing, you know, a bit of consultancy. I was doing a bit of teaching. I had, you know, very low overheads. And so I was having a great time. So I thought, well, let's, you know, let's stretch this on for another three years. And you're right, that is the normal route into academia. But I guess I'd always wanted to go and experience the real world. And I had the entrepreneurial streak and I was pleased to be fully recovered. So that's really what, what, what took me out. Um, I saw the academic career path ahead of me. And to be honest, from a career perspective, it, it wasn't a good move because you have to, you know, there's a certain accumulation path dependency of that. Mm. And if you don't have that, it's, it's tough. So, yeah, so I wanted to experience the real world. I always wanted to go back to academia, but I, I didn't want to be one of those professors or lecturers who didn't know what they were talking about and there's a lot of them around sadly no i i know exactly what you mean um I, it was a long time since i was a student but I, I can remember it for yourself it seemed like quite a clear-cut decision you know like you say you're enjoying your life as a student even into sort of master and phd you're relatively making yourself a good living and comfortable and then you made that jump but i'm sure you've had others ask you and, and probably some of your phd students now and, and those sort of who are working you know maybe started that academic path who are toying with exactly what you've said. You know, they don't necessarily want to be that that professor who's never actually been in the industry sort of lecturing from an outsider perspective. Almost what's the advice, you know, for anyone who might be listening in that that position, what's your advice? You know, if they're doing a PhD right now, 
and they're trying to decide, do I go into academia or do I go into consulting? You know, what are some of the questions you'd encourage them to think about before making that decision? I mean, I, I guess it comes down to, you know, their life goals or their, at least their short term life goals. Um, you know, if, if you want experience, if you are a bit more creative or innovative, at least um, consultancies don't recruit on creativity generally, then consultancy is something very different, something where you learn a huge amount very quickly. It's challenging. I mean, I've got a, I've got a degree from Oxford, top of my master's, you know, at the time Warwick business school was ranked top in the world for its PhD program. So I was, you know, strutting around, I've got a new suit. And, uh, and I was doing the photocopying uh, on, on £1,500 a day. Uh, not I was, I obviously wasn't getting that as Zansa was. And it was humbling. And I had this boss who, you know, wanted, you know, really dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And I'd never really had to deal with that level of detail or humiliation. <laughs> and, uh, and so there, there is a mindset thing there. You need you need to be prepared that you're you might be an expert in a tiny, tiny, narrow little field as a PhD, but you're starting from scratch in many respects. The other thing is it was quite when I had my inter or one of the interviews, the interviewer said, and I won't name the firm. The interviewer said, uh, "Oh, you're, you've got a doctorate," and I said, "Yes, it's in." Um, and they said, "Well, we're not interested in what it's in." The fact that you've got a doctorate means we can charge an extra £200 a day for you. Uh, (laughs) You need to be aware that, you know, it's quite mercenary. But, I mean, the the, the top consultancies, you know, people think that business school students are most likely to um, be recruited by consultancies. It's not true. Engineering, philosophy, math students, IT students are more likely per head of applicants to get into consultancy than business school students are simply because business schools are generally and i'm not and i'm talking globally here but they're not particularly good at teaching transferable qualitative and quantitative skills wow that that's fascinating and and i can't move on without asking by the way my degree was in part philosophy so i'm a big fan of it but you, you know maths engineering people are probably listening and going yeah, numerate analytical philosophy jumps out but why are those degrees better because i know lots of people who would say i'm going to go to business school to get into mckinsey why actually are those the routes that people either undergraduate or postgraduate should be following if they do? Because, I mean, consultancies look at, look at those courses because they give them structured problem-solving skills. And certainly for the recruitment part of it, I'm not convinced that uh, what, you, what consultancies recruit on is always actually what, they, what people end up doing. Um, but certainly in terms of getting in, if you are a natural problem-solver who can do fast maths, not necessarily complex maths, but fast maths, then you're much more likely to get in. Business schools have got better at providing uh, quantitative uh, skills and uh, you know structured problem solving, but they're still lagging behind. What they are better at now, uh, certainly compared to when I was an undergraduate, is preparing students for things. So mm. I frequently do talks at the top universities, you know, teaching people about the case interview, the partner interview, how to structure a CV and all the rest of it. And they've, I'm always amazed they've got so many resources and advice and that's so precious. And I would recommend students to to look at that, especially if they're PhD and, but you know, they're, they're, they've been quite out of that for a while. The advice is there and it's there free. I mean, we're living in a, in a wonderful time in terms of information. I completely agree, Joe. And I do want to come back to your journey, but just because you've sort of you started talking about it, I'm really keen to get some of that perspective on you know what you were saying about advice for 
those who are currently at university, either undergraduate or graduate level. A few weeks ago, I did a, a panel with a number of speakers for Explore Consulting on graduate careers in consulting. And, and frankly, it's been so long since I was a graduate, I'm, I'm probably a little out of touch. But I'd, I'd love to understand, you know, if anyone listening is looking to, to get into the industry, what is, you said you do talks on this, and, and I appreciate case studies, quite practical, but but what are some of those skills and experiences that you would be recommending people go and get to set themselves up, you know, for the best possible chance of getting that consulting job they want? Okay, so, you know, without meaning to plug my website. <laughs> please do, please do. So consulting masters, the reason I set it up and the reason I started to look at the career side was I was mightily pissed off with the lack of information that I was given in careers. I mean, especially compared to the public school boys that I was at Oxford with, who, you know, not only had this stuff ingrained to them with them, but also had the network and all the rest of it. And it, it really irritated me that Harvard, um, Oxford, etc., you know, prime their students. They give them so much knowledge about getting in. And so I thought, well, I want to democratise this a bit. Um, so I've, I've got a course and a whole load of free information um, about getting into consultancies. And if anyone finds that inadequate or they don't want to pay for the, the big course, then just drop me an email. So I'm more than happy to, to share this stuff. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the key things are you need to distinguish the recruitment process from how you get on in consultancy once you're recruited. Yeah. So sadly, in, in many respects, the recruitment process is still very traditional and still very skewed. In fact, I wrote a paper on this in the Management Consulting Journal just six months ago. It's still quite elitist in terms mm. of who they take on, especially if you're looking at the strategy firms. And there's very good reasons, there's very logical reasons for it being elitist because they're dealing with CEOs who are, you know, part of the elites generally. But that elite is changing. So I, I think it's a sad thing that they still recruit in this way. But if you want to get into consulting and you're starting from scratch, you know, towards the bottom sort of analyst consultant level, Number one, start practicing fast maths now. Your maths doesn't have to be great, but it needs to be fast. Number two, well, I, I guess overarching all of this is go and look at the advice. I mean, go to consulting masters, go to a prep lounge, go to MBA mastered and all, you know, all of these websites that are out there to give you free advice. So number one, fast maths. Number two, practice the case interview and don't just practice it five times, practice it 20 times. Number three, get your behavioral interview stories sorted. So we all know the behavioral interviews, which are, you know, tell me about a time that you led a team to success. Tell me about a time when you had to communicate a difficult message to a group. So there's basically six competencies that pretty much all consultancies recruit against. No matter how bright you are, your story, if you haven't practiced it, and if you don't know how they're marking it, will, will only get you 30% of the marks available. Typically, I, I do this exercise. I get the students to tell their story and then I give them the mark scheme. So I, I've got the marking scheme that consultancies use. I give them the marking scheme and they mark each other and they get, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent. And then I, they reveal the marking scheme to the other person and they start getting 60, 70, 80 percent. So if you can get the behavioral stories right, if your maths is fast, if you practice the case interview, and also if you practiced the partner interview i find when i've been coaching people for this is that they tend to over practice the case interview and under practice the partner interview so speaking to consultancy recruiters they're all saying it's you know it's virtually impossible to to distinguish between you know top graduates now because they all come out doing the perfect case interview 
But the, the next stage, sort of the partner interview, is the one where you can really tell the difference. So preparing for that is is important. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense, Joe. And well, it's worth saying in the show notes, I'll put a link to your website. I'll also put a link to the two sites you mentioned there because I'm a massive believer in exactly what you've said. My, you know, contrary to my accent now, I'm state school educated and didn't know what a management consultant was until I was about 21. And I still remember going to, you know, it was a Deloitte case interview and, and it was it was terrible. It was all me. It was terrible. But exactly what you've just said, you know, really struck a chord is, I'll be perfectly honest, I didn't have a clue what I was walking into. And actually having some insights on that, you know, for people who are trying to get into this industry is really powerful because, you know, I do remember when I was in consulting and I was sort of, in, it was it was interns, but I was doing CV screening. And, you know, again, for anyone listening to this who's a graduate and my old consultants who probably won't hold it against me, I was doing it on the train after a long week. I was trying to do it very quickly. You're seeing CVs where everyone's got A's, everyone's at a good university, everyone captained the rugby, football, hockey, netball team. And actually that distinguishing factor is quite difficult. And like you say, actually doing it in interviews is, is a key part. Interested actually, and you might just tell me this is a bit of a myth, so I'd love to you know, challenge me on this, is what you've talked about sounds perfect. You know, If I get in the door and I can get in, in front of them, I can do what you've said. Are there any almost foundations that, you know, let's take undergrads for now, but maybe it applies equally to masters and PhD students, that students should be building, you know, internships, sort of side projects and consulting, does that stuff matter or not? I'd be fascinated in your view. Yeah, so it matters hugely. However, I would say that people forget that the the early part of the recruitment process is either automated or it's outsourced to people who tick boxes. So the actual detail of what you do isn't so important until the later stages. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not necessarily important in getting through the door. Because if you've got a good degree, if you can demonstrate basic competencies, etc., you're probably going to get through the door and then you need to demonstrate the thing that we're going to be talking about. So, yes, of course, you know, internships are important, not just because they indicate interest, but also because I think 65% of internship places end up getting a job offer from that place. Mm-hmm. So internships have become as, as hotly fought over as full-time places are. So yes, I mean, and, and the more you can do in that respect, I mean, if I'm looking at the students who went into, of mine, who got into Bain Boston Consulting, and they weren't necessarily the brightest, but they weren't just, you know, the most logical and good problem solvers and, and you know, very polished social skills, but they had done the extra things. They'd started up a company, they'd done a bit of consulting, they'd, um, they'd volunteered for certain things. So my view is, you know, and it's tough, you know, if you come from a poor background and you're not flush, then it's easy to say, you know, I'll go and volunteer or do a free internship with whoever, but you may not be able to afford to. But there's so many opportunities out there to make money. You know, I mean, Fiverr is a good example. I mean, every year I employ good master's students to help me with various things. And so, you know, get out there, ask people, you know, ask your academics, contact people on LinkedIn, contact businesses locally, send letters, because, you know, the opportunities are there if you knock. It's just about when your CV arrives on the desk, do you want to say, I was a waitress or waiter uh, every summer? Or do you want to say, you know, I helped someone start a company or, you know, I I did something quite creative and unusual. Um, So it's it's making yourself stand out a, a little bit if you want to. 
I think that's a really key point. And Joe, to what you said as well, because again, I, you know, having seen now both sides of the fence, having, you know, again, I, I don't want to pretend I came from a, a sort of hard up background, but equally, I didn't have any friends whose parents ran consulting firms. But having now seen the other side of it, to exactly your point, the free internship from the the person who you know at big consultancy X doesn't have to be the route. I mean, I, I take, and I know you, you won't mind me saying it, you know, one of my team, okay, we're not in consulting, but he as a student freelanced in marketing. And, you know, actually, if to your point of being a waiter, you know, if someone came to me, and I may be opening myself up here for, for hundreds of emails, but if someone said, look, I'm going to earn £5.50 at the cafe, but I'd much rather spend that time and earn £5.50 learning about marketing with you, and I'm sure it's the same for yourself. You know, there's a lot of opportunity out there. And actually, it's then how you tell that story on your CV and what you learned about it. So I, I think it's a, I'm violently agreeing. And I think it's a really key point for anyone listening as well. I like the phrase violently agreeing. <laughs> One thing I, guess- I would add, and that is for students who have dissertations, is to think, and even if you're choosing your PhD topic at the moment, and even if you've chosen it and you're early on and there's still space to change it, do think about doing it in something useful and rare. I mean, literally, I get hundreds of people contacting me, asking me to be supervisor for doing, you know, cultural change in a medium-sized manufacturing organization. I think nobody is interested in that anymore. Or even if they are, you're entering a market which is so crowded. Mm. You know, look at big data, look at analytics, look at artificial intelligence, look at, I mean, you know, 3G or 5G pricing. I was talking to someone yesterday and saying that, you know, the business model for 5G pricing and the use cases for 5G pricing just aren't understood. So what I'm doing now is creating, um, you know, a few projects for my students so that when they go out into the marketplace, yeah. they can say, I did my, you know, dissertation on uh, 5G use cases for revenue flow. And of course, you know, what consultancy is going to say, well, I'm not interested in that when there's dozens of telcos keen to, to pay them to, to tell them about it. I, I think it's a, you know, Again, as an outsider, I, I can only infer, but I think it's a massive point, Joe, exactly like you say, you know, for people listening, if you're going to do that depth of study and academia isn't the route you want to stay in forever or you want those options, I mean, why not? To your point, big data is massive right now. Why not go and learn that super niche element and as opposed to doing a dissertation on something that I won't name any dissertations for, for fear of offending people, but doesn't carry that level of value in the corporate world if that's the world you want to get to. Sure. And, and and also, if you know, even if you're undecided about whether you want to be an academic or not, then, you know, if you want to do a PhD in, you know, gender studies or, or whatever, you know, try try and incorporate some rare skills into it. You know, do do a social media uh, audit. You know, look at what's talked about in Reddit. Look at the look at the construction of self um, on, you know, new apps rather than in traditional tech. So try and get those unusual skills so that you can distinguish yourself. And this is not just true of consultancy, it's true mm. of academia as well. You know, everyone and their dog is doing HRM or, you know, uh, whatever. So if, if you find yourself on that course, try and do something that distinguishes you from, from everyone else. I, I love that. And I'm just uh, I'm, I'm sort of I'm smiling because, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see the dissertation on gender studies and, t- and the rise of TikTok. But it's exactly the same point you make, isn't it? <laughs> I do want to come back to the sort of the undergrad, but just because you mentioned around the sort of PhD side, and, and this might be from your own experience or from some of your students. Again, having not done one myself, this is just what I understand. But PhD, you, to your point, you become an expert in a topic. You spend you know the best part of three or four years learning everything in a very going very deep and narrow. Almost what, if any, challenges did you or do you find people have when they move into consulting where 
it's almost, particularly in the early grades, it's the polar opposite. You know, as an analyst or consultant, you go a mile wide and you could go from a telco project to a FMCG to a FS project. How did you find that transition and what advice do you give to others to prepare themselves for it as well? I mean, I guess the big preparation I think students need to make is is in terms of stress and managing it and having an exercise plan and having a network and being able to prioritise and, and all of that type of thing. I think if you're a good PhD student, you're going to be used to, you know, having to give poster sessions, you know, talking at conferences, writing papers, teaching, running tutorials. So it's it's not just, you know, you spend four years in, in a box reading, although some of them do, sadly. <laughs> they go on to be the, the top professors, of course. Um, <laughs> but it's actually, it's, it's the opposite. It's coming back to academia, which is the hard thing. Going from academia to consulting, I don't think is particularly hard because, you know, you're, you're bright, you're used to working hard, you've probably got a few skills. One thing I would say is be aware of the skills that you don't have and seek to develop them as quickly as possible. But actually, the tough thing is going back to academia because, Academia is like learning a foreign language. And if you haven't spoken it for a few years, you forget it. It is incredibly hard. You know, the longest thing I wrote for several years was, you know, perhaps a strategy document or, or you know, a, a particularly long email. And of course, I had analysts to help, to help me with that. But coming back to academia, you've got to learn this ridiculous language, sadly, which is purposefully obscure and, you know, requires you to say things in 20,000 words, which could probably be said in 3,000 words. So learning that is difficult. It took me a good three or four years to really get into the academic style of writing. I do want to ask you about it, Joe, because I, I know it's obviously a big part of your life and, and the decision point and some of those pieces. I guess just before we do move on, though, and, and almost to close out the, the chapter on sort of your students and advice for students, I think the other fascinating piece of me is you know, you've been doing this a long time now. You will have seen students who probably have gone from, you know, students in your class to being partners in some of these firms. And I would love to just find out, you know, you've given some really fantastic advice on how you get in the door. I'd love to just get your sort of reflection on those that you know, and you kept in touch with. What is it that separated those that have made it to the top from those who who didn't? Is there anything, you know, either from when they were a student, you could sort of see it or from what you've seen as they've grown, has really distinguished them as individuals that has enabled them to get there? By making it to the top, do you mean in terms of becoming partner at a consultancy or do you mean in terms of doing generally well in their careers? That's a really good question. I should also caveat by generally well is all is relative entirely, but for ease of the podcast, let's take it for both. So yeah, there are plenty of people who have done very well outside of consulting having started in it. So either and or, if that helps. Okay, so the average lifespan of a, of a graduate in consultancy is eight years. For an MBA, it's seven years. The biggest reason they leave is stress. Your ability to manage stress and prioritize things and be okay with doing imperfect work is absolutely crucial. If you can't manage that, and there's no, you know, there's no shame on not being able to manage it because you know some people are put in untenable positions, and that's part of the consultancy business model that I'm happy to talk about for many firms. So your ability to manage stress is is crucial. Um, in terms of core, you know, characteristics, we all know the high flyers and, and their personality type. You know, they're, they're bright, but not necessarily the brightest, but they keep turning up. They keep doing reliable work. They are mature. They're trustworthy. You're not scared of putting them in front of clients. And also they have luck on their side. And luck plays a huge part in anyone's career. So I, there was, I had a wonderful mentor, mentor called Simon Forge, 
And he said to me quite early on, he said, if you keep going the way you're going, you're going to burn out. He said, you have made it to, you know, to a certain extent. He said, all you need to do now is keep turning up, keep doing the work, keep turning up. And I think a vast number of people, you know, exclude themselves from the competition because they leave or they, you know, they don't turn up or they, you know, and turning up is a difficult thing. You know, life gets in the way. So I don't want to go into character traits too much. And also, I think your caveat is completely right in terms of, you know, what what is success? What is the best? And one of the things I, I stress to all my students is that just because a consulting firm has made a specific shaped hole and you don't fit into it doesn't mean that in any sense you are a failure. And I know dozens of great people, talented, creative people who are going to do well according to some schema that just simply aren't suited to the consulting industry. I taught this wonderful Indian student who was doing his MBA because his dad wanted him to. All he wanted to do was to go into the theatre uh, in, in, in India, in Bollywood. And his dad was really pressurising him to go and be a consultant. And no one would have recruited him because he didn't have those competencies. Now, he's a well-known Bollywood actor. I won't mention his name because he hasn't permission to. But he eventually convinced his dad that if he could get through the MBA, he had the right to try Bollywood. And he tried it and was successful. So we, we live in a society now, and this is the academic in me coming out. We live in a society where through the, the Apprentice and Dragon's Den and, you know, the advertising of the big firms, you know, consultancy and its ilk are seen as, you know, the golden ticket. You know, if you've made it into McKinsey, you've made it. If you go back 200 years, you know, any form of business was looked down upon as, as positively dirty. You know, if you go back a thousand years, it was, you know, your credit was given on how religious you were. So we live in a, a time which sadly perhaps emphasizes success in a very certain way. And so mm. my message to students is if you continually get rejected, don't think that there is something lacking about you. There may actually be something wonderful about you that consultancies simply reject. Joe, I, I think some phenomenal points. And I mean, I, I think it must be an amazing being a student in one of your classes to hear someone say that because, you know, I, I do agree. And I mean, it's easy for me to say sort of, where I am now and at the age I am, I know at 21, I would have told myself to bugger off and I want to go get that well-paid graduate job. But, you know, exactly like you say, I mean, in part why I left was probably was that burnout, you know, turning up too hard and running out of, you know, charge or whatever you want to use the metaphor. But equally what you've said as well, you know, consulting isn't for everyone. It doesn't have to be for everyone. And, and success is measured in so many different ways. And I think your example there about the, you know, the actor, your student as well, you know, success isn't purely pounds. It's not purely the title. And some might sort of be rolling their eyes saying that I'm perpetuating this because I only talk to people who've reached the top of their fields. But I, I think the the unifying theme out of everyone I've spoken to is, and you know, you're no different in what you do is you've got to love what you do. And if you love consulting, well, great to your point, there's a, there's a U-shaped hole in it. If actually you love Bollywood acting, maybe go and be a Bollywood actor and you know, you'll be happier. And you know, as I've got older, I sort of figured out the money figures itself out. And you also realize you, you may not need as much money as you thought you did. I'm sure you were the same. But when, you know, if somebody had told me that at the age of whatever, I'd have been on, you know, 100 grand or whatever, I'd have thought, well, I'd have money coming out. You know, my bank account would be full. I'd be able to retire in however many years. And I, I speak to a lot of students and professionals who think who say, well, I'm just going to do this for another seven years and then I'm going to leave when I've got enough money. 
you know, your expenditure rises to match your income, uh, sadly, unless you're particularly disciplined. So don't don't fall for that old chestnut. Oh, it's, it's massive. And I think I might have said this when I did my interview for the show, Joe, but actually that was my, you know, people talk about midlife crises. I, I had one very early as a quarter life crisis. And it was for that reason is, you know, I moved to be a contractor, suddenly had, you know, the the income that had been my sort of decade goal I'd got in five years. And to your point, you, you suddenly then realize that actually it doesn't fix the problem, whatever the problem is, um, nor does it yeah, give you, you know, suddenly I was not a rapper in LA surrounded by champagne. And and once you realize that's probably not going to happen anyway, my, my rap career has, you know, reached an end before it begun. You move on to pastures new. So I, I completely agree with you. And that trap is, you know, it, I know a lot of people in it and it's sad and it's a shame, you know, if you need maybe it's a good jumping off point because i i think you're going to have a really nice perspective on this because you have done this and you've chosen to step away from that so you mentioned earlier that you took a i don't know 75 percent pay cut to move into academia and frankly it doesn't matter how much that is in pounds that's a huge pay cut you know to all of those points we were just talking about around sort of trapping yourself in the lifestyle and and sort of being nervous about getting off the treadmill you confronted this head on and made the jump. I'd love to hear a bit more about that period of your life. And if you're happy to share, you know, how did it get to the point where you were considering leaving? How did you, you know, decide to go into academia and any of those questions you asked yourself, your your partner, your friends to, to really make sure it was the right decision for you at that time? Sure. No, that, 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 that's a good point. I'd always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to go back to academia. I, I love teaching and I love writing. There's a huge amount I miss about consultancy. I miss bright people. I miss um, teamwork. I miss being creative. I miss learning such a vast amount, which is ironic coming from a professor. But I think the higher up you go in the academic hierarchy, the less you learn, sadly, because it encourages you to specialize. I guess there were several reasons. Um, one is that one is that I was I was exhausted, to be honest. Launching mm. three was a 14 hours a day, six days a week job. At the time, I didn't have a great relationship either, and that was quite that was quite exhausting. So I didn't have that safe haven, and I just I just wanted a, a break. Uh, kind, you know, three were kind enough to to give me uh, a six months gardening leave, paid, which was wonderful because I could really look at what I wanted to do. I, I guess the other side of it is that as a consultant, and many people who are in consulting will know this. You're constantly experiencing fascinating things. I mean, you know, and you think, oh, I need to I need to take time to capture this. But you haven't got time. You know, if you're on the bench, it's dangerous. And, you know, even if you're on the bench, you'll put on internal work. You know, I was learning all this incredible stuff that didn't have time to um didn't have time to capture it, reflect and and you know, teach people about it. So mm-hmm. I wanted to do that. And yeah, I, I guess there was there was a turning point. I always used to drive a little red beat-up polo, and okay. I'm proud of it because, you know, even when I was on the good money, I would drive in and uh, see all these, you know, these people who were getting, you know, 600, 700 pounds a month of their car allowance and just spending it on these Audis or whatever. And I remember laughing at them when I first arrived, and everyone had the same model and, uh, you know, and... After a few years, I remember driving into the car park and thinking, I tell you what, I'd like a Merc, you know, that Merc over there. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been in the cars because people, and then I thought, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but it, it wasn't me. And then I thought, you probably need to get out of this because it was becoming my life. You've become quite competitive in terms of 
you know, it's a very competitive industry. You want to get to the top if you want to do well. And I found myself thinking um, more and more I, I, I could do with the academic route. Um, now, obviously, going back to academia, I, you know, I said I, I was quite restless and I started up a few companies mm. and, and did a lot of other things. But, uh, yeah, so, so for me, it was a combination of factors. It seemed at the time, it seemed like a much braver and riskier thing than it actually was. It helped a huge amount that my first job was at Lancaster University, which is dirt cheap. So I could live, you know, on... This is the city, by the way, not the university, just to to check. (laughs) A highly prized quality university. I studied at York, so we we might say that, but... um... There we go. Yeah, I mean, York's great. I really enjoy going to York. But, yeah, it it was dirt cheap to live. So I didn't need... I, 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 I was single. I didn't have any dependents. And so it was quite, you know, lovely. It was almost back to basics for me. Um, it was almost uh, a retreat. Um, because certainly when I joined academia 15 years ago, it was a bit like early retirement. You know, especially having worked 14-hour days, six days a week. It, it has changed since then. But um, that's why I could set up a manufacturing <laughs> business um, my first couple of years of being, being a lecturer. And I think, you know, there, there's some really interesting pieces in there. Um, I think that point around the, just that, that almost epiphany, if you like. And if it was just that sort of watershed moment, you thought, right, I need to get out of this. And just, you know, that, that burnout from the 14 hours, you know, we, we, we'll move on. I just, I'm interested, was there anything else in that process? You know, because I know first time having gone back and forth through this, you kind of, one day it's very much, yeah, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go and do my own thing. I'm going to do something else. But then the next day, it's like, oh, well, actually, I quite like that holiday. I quite like that, whatever else it is, you know, take it, your Merck. Was there any sort of that to and fro for you? And sort of some of those, were there any questions that came up throughout that or anything that you sort of remember really having an impact? If it wasn't, and for you, it was quite a clear cut, yeah, I need to go back into academia, you know, we'll, we'll move on. There, there, there are constantly, I'm still plagued by, by self-doubt. I'm a, you know, consultancy is full of insecure overachievers, and I would stress the, the, the insecure. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm still in contact with a lot of friends. You know, I was just talk, chatting to, you know, and a lot of them are CEOs now of some of the big four or some of the strategy firms. And I, you know, some of them, there's there's one, <laughs> there's one guy in particular who says, "Oh, Joe, you know, you let yourself down by, you know, you could have been, you could have been CEO of, you know, whatever by now." Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but I don't think so. But I also see the number of ruined relationships. I see the number of heart attacks. I see the physical deterioration in people. That that doesn't always happen, of course. But I think it would have happened to me even more so than it has already. And so I I think the consulting lifestyle suits some life, you know, at at your life stage that you're at, it suits some people and, and not others. And I learned a huge amount. I learned great skills. It set me up for becoming a a reasonable teacher and a reasonable academic. So I don't regret any of it. Making that choice itself wasn't too difficult. I also happened to have met, uh, a year after leaving consulting, I'd met the girl who has now become my wife, and she was down in in Cornwall. And so I thought, well, I need a way to get away from London. And so I I ended up at Cardiff University because she was at university in Bristol. So, yeah. (laughs) Kind of, it kind of all, all fell, fell into place. And I don't, I certainly don't regret it because now I get to spend time with my boys. I get mm. to spend time with my wife. And, you know, if I'm not being funny because I think this is a good thing, but if I died today, 
I don't think my employers would necessarily, and this is a good thing because they, they, they trust you to get on with your life. I don't think they'd noted for a couple of months. <laughs> Depending on whether or not I had lectures. But that's wonderful because, and I, I don't know about you, but when I was a consultant, I needed to fill in a, a timesheet for every 15 minutes of my time. And now they just trust me to get on with, to get on with it. I'll, let me tell you this wonderful brief story. Go, please, Joe. That's why we have these long interviews. I love stories like this. Go for it. When I came from consulting to academia, you know, I, I passed the interview and they gave me this course on, I don't know, a change management teach. And so, you know, I did this slide deck as you do and got all these resources and, and bundled them all up together and sent them to my boss. And he said, well, why have you sent me these? And I said, well, who's in charge of quality standards? And he said, well, Joe, he said, we, we kind of assume that once you're here, you know, you're of sufficient quality and we're happy to let you get on with it. And I could not believe it. I mean, you know what consulting is like. You've got the partner on your back or the senior manager on the back all the time, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's. You know, I was told my suit wasn't good enough and I had to go and buy a different suit. And all of a sudden, I was just let loose. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing. I do think in academia, there should be more quality control or quality enforcement. But I mean, what a wonderful change, you know, and you can teach, you can teach what you want, you can teach how you want, you can research what you want. You know, I, I, I do a lot of stuff in philosophy and no one cares. It's, it's great. And as long as I get published and as long as the students don't hate me, everyone's happy. A lot of my friends say, Joe, you're living the dream. It doesn't feel like that from the inside because the grass is always greener, <laughs> no matter where you are. But it's, it's, it's a nice life now. So I, I love the story, Joe. I, it, it, it answers a lot of questions for some of the lecturers I had as a, as a student at, at university. But I also think you, you, know, you paint an interesting picture for anyone listening, because I think, again, you know, the, in today's world of hyper fast sort of social media, everything gets put into a very small box. And I, th- I think the thing I'm really taking from what you're saying is actually the in a world where plural careers and sort of doing a bit of a few different things has become much more in vogue and, and much more accessible. Actually, you're, you're painting a very powerful picture there of if someone wants to have that creativity and that energy and tr- do a few things, you know, academia potentially gives you that. You, you've got your passion and the topic you you lecture in and you, you research in. But actually, you know, like you said, you've been able to build businesses on the side. You've, you know, you're doing things like this and it all all comes into much more of a it, lifestyle makes it sound derogatory. It's not intended at all, but actually build a, a lifestyle around what you want, as opposed to your point, I guess, always focusing on have I done my eight hours billable? Have I got the boxes aligned in my PowerPoint? Have I got the deck to the partner? You know, the, for anyone listening who wants to stay in consulting, but do something broader, actually, you know, what you're sound, saying sounds quite appealing. We have, I say this to my students, we live better than the kings and queens of England have ever lived up until, say, the 1950s. We have less pain, we live longer, we eat better food, we have better knowledge, we're warmer, not necessarily happier, but that's a different question. And so, you know, what have you got to lose by changing? People, you know, get caught up, as you say, you know, and you've got to pay the mortgage and the mortgage is this much. But, you know, if you've got a good relationship, then, you know, you don't have to have the bigger house. You can have the happier relationships. I'm not saying it's either or, mm. but I, I, I very rarely met a person who has made a either brave or risky fundamental decision about their life and then regretted it. Now, I'm sure you're going to have get many people saying, well, I, you know, I sold all my clothes uh, to, to join the circus and, and now I'm... <laughs> 
and that may be the case but the vast majority of people i, I think don't experience that so it's funny hearing you say that because for me, um, so I, I can only attest the same, you know, my, my first business failed into a um, whole host of sort of embarrassment, but you know, I would not change what happened and how it worked for, for anything because it set me up for where, where I am now. Um, and it was actually Bronick Masayada at his Cox who I've, I've attributed this before and credited him both to his face and on the podcast of, you know, he tells a parable from his life, but it was exactly that. And, you know, his sort of reflection, his epiphany was that consulting is always there. You know, the consulting industry is never disappearing. And frankly, you can always go back. If you weren't terrible, you can go back. And I think to exactly your point, you know, anyone listening who wants to try academia, go do a couple of years up in the north of England. It's a lot cheaper to live. And if you hate it, London with the consulting industry is still there. I would say for those of you that think are thinking of going to academia, it has got harder. It is no longer early retirement, especially if you are a new academic or a young academic. Getting the full-time permanent job is tough. Yeah. Um, not that you necessarily want it or need it, but th- there are so many good PhD students now. And although academia is still a slight growth industry, it's getting tougher. But then consulting is getting tougher. You know, profit margins are down, training has collapsed, or utilisation rates are up. So... There are no easy jobs, as I said to students uh, a couple of months ago. No, de- definitely. And, and I want to actually, that's going to segue us quite nicely. And normally I would I would just jump on that. But I have to ask, because otherwise I'll forget and I'll, I'll kick myself, is you, you've mentioned a couple of times your passion lies in philosophy. Is that the philosophy of consulting? Is that something else? Just I'm curious, what is it your, your passion lies in there? So, so my interest is ontology. So the, the study of what exists. I am a great believer in in facts. I read a lot of critical realism. There's a philosopher called Roy Bascar. I, I guess I spend a lot of my time pushing back against French post-structuralists who believe that nothing exists other than what we talk about, or actualists who believe that nothing exists other than what is actually occurring at this moment. Um, that does have quite strong applications to business. I mean, I could talk about this all day. Listeners aren't going to be that interested. But, I mean, if you look at, you know, we're in this, what people call the post-truth society, where, you know, if Trump says something loud enough, then people believe it to be true. We're in these echo chambers in social media. Mm. I guess I'm I'm fighting the defense of this. Uh, so so the, the, the war against that, which is that, you know, if we want to have a progressive science-based uh, democracy, then um, then we need to to go back, not go back to basics, not go back to positivism, but certainly believe that there is a truth, and by that, by that I mean a social truth. There, there's quite significant management implications for this, especially when you look at the reliance on things like big data and artificial intelligence. Um, you tend to get, well, the danger out there is that you get, you don't understand the why. You see correlation and you think there is causation. Um, you, you let computers make decisions. And delayering of sort of, I guess, experienced management, I think, is quite a dangerous thing because you're getting rid of human expertise and knowledge. And without that, you're going to make mistakes. So, I, I mean, I, I once made the mistake of showing, I, I was asked to do a talk to the Association of Head Teachers. And I decided to read a whole load of McKinsey research about teaching and paraphrase it. And I just got ripped apart by people who said, look, sure, there are these correlations, but you're missing the narrative underpinning it all. And that narrative comes from experience and, you know, really understanding the whys. 
And so that that's my philosophical bent. I'm I'm an ontologist. I'm a critical realist, and I, I think social constructivism and the post-truth society is a danger to the society and business. Fantastic, Joe. Well, I um, in part because it's been so long since I studied any of that. I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying and and saying anything on that topic. Other than I, I think you you know your point in the application to business, and I'm sure you taught this teach this to your students as well. Is 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 critical. And I agree with you, you know, those second order consequences, the why that's so key. And I think it's an offline conversation, because we could spend a long time talking about this. And I'd love to hear more. But I, I think nicely does bring us back to, I think the next area I was really keen to touch on. And you mentioned before consulting mastered, where you, you mentioned it in a graduate context, but I know you also advise, you know, some of the companies you've talked about on sort of a whole range of things. I'm also very conscious and and sort of what originally I know we talked a lot about with your new book that's coming. And I kind of I will only say as much as I do know, and you can sort of stop me or you can you can take it from there is one of the reasons I do this series is to share the advice and guidance of leaders in our industry, not just sort of entrepreneurs, but anyone leading in consulting. And I know you have been, you know, over your career, you've interviewed something like 400 people. So I am very much second place to you. But I know your current book or the book you're working on is really trying to encapsulate the sort of entrepreneurial side and through interviews, dissect what it is that makes a great consulting leader. So that's my understanding. I would love to almost hand over to you and, and really find out based on that consulting work, based on your your book, you know, what are some of those key commonalities let's say you see across firms what are some of those common challenges and and really what's struck you most through both the consulting you've done and and the interviews as well okay so i guess i'll, I'll give a little bit of background about about the, the methodology so o- over the years having you know been a self-styled professor of consulting i've had a lot of my old friends who basically went up through the ranks bumped up against partner left and started their own firms and came to me and said what should I do to grow a successful firm? And, you know, I gave advice on, on the basis of my own experience. But I was quite embarrassed in that for academia generally, because there is very little out there to advise people who want to grow and potentially sell their consulting firm. The advice that is out there tends to either come from one person saying, this is how I did it. Mm. And we all know you can't generalize from a case of one, especially if it's 20 years ago. Or it comes from people who want to sell you things. <laughs> wonderful thing about academia is, number one, you get to see a wide range of things. So, you know, I've, I've interviewed for, the, for this project, I've interviewed 52 founders who have grown and sold their consulting firms. Wow. I've interviewed another, I guess, 30 either buyers of consulting firms or people that were trying to be successful and, and failed and they collapsed back on in, in on themselves and the company went bankrupt. And I also interviewed around 15 sort of prize winners of uh, consulting firms uh, that won various prizes in terms of best consulting firm to work for or, or whoever. These are small, small to medium-sized consulting firms. So just before you go on for our audience, what do you mean by a small to medium? So really, I'm looking at from the point of starting, so, you know, founder, all the way up to the point when you sell. And that is typically start. No, you can sell a consulting firm if you've got 10 people in it. I have seen that. But that goes typically the lowest point is around 30. A common low point is around 30 employees um, or I guess around four to five million dollars all the way up to I've interviewed people that have a hundred million dollar company and 120 employees so between zero and 100 
uh, but most of mine are between zero and 30. Typically, when I'm interviewing people, they're in the earnout period. So they've been bought, got they've you. done the deal, they've got cash in the bank, but to get the rest of the cash, they're doing their earnout. So I guess this is my way of feeling less guilty when people come to me for advice of just using my own experience and, you know, of chatting to a few people or advising a few people. Now, over the years, I had built up enough coaching experience to understand some of the commonalities, but there's so much work to do. I'd say 90% of 95% of academic studies in consultancy are McKinsey, Bain, Boston, uh, or, or the big four, or, you know, Accenture, IBM, that, the largest, because, you know, they're seen as much more sexy. You know, if you write a paper on McKinsey, you're likely to get something in the Harvard Business Review. If you write a paper about, you know, Joe Bloggs Consulting and a few others, you're not. But I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care, you know. There's, <laughs> this is the other wonderful thing about academia you know, you don't have to, you're not trying to sell. Your job isn't dependent. I mean, I'm sure if I murdered some students, they'd probably sack me. But unlike consulting, where you are literally out the door for wearing the wrong suit, I can tell the truth. I can tell it like it is. So I don't really, although I'm making, you know, a a bit of money doing the coaching and stuff, I I don't have any interest in in upselling because I left consultancy to get away from all of that. So I mean, sorry, sorry to give that background. I think your original question was on sort of the, the commonalities. Well, I think the background takes us into what I'm expecting, Joe. It's going to be a fantastic answer of ex- exactly right, you know, with, with no axe to grind, no course to sell. And, and I, I fully agree as well. I think you know, a lot of these things are done by people with an agenda and not a bad way. You've got to make a living. But for you, without an agenda, with nothing to sell, what are some of those commonalities Take it either for firm or individual. Maybe we do firm then individual. But I'd love to get, yeah, what are some of those key themes you're seeing come out? Well, I mean, very, very early on, the firm is the individual, isn't it? I mean, if you're you know, if you're a founder, I mean, the, the, the commonalities. Now, this, what I'm going to say, and if we talk about this in a bit more detail, I would say applies to between 70 and 80%. There are outliers because luck has a huge part to play. If you opened a cyber security firm in the 90s, it would be hard not to be successful, yeah? And no matter how good you are, if a client that 80% of your work comes from suddenly disappears or decides to stop using you, you know, it's going to be hard to survive at all. So number one, luck plays a huge, a huge part in all of this. But so the, the commonalities of at least, you know, we can, we can go into detail. Please. But number one is planning to to sell from the outset so what's the plan what number do i want to get to in order to sell and then breaking that down in detail what does that mean in terms of clients what does it mean in terms of employees uh, what does it mean in terms of revenue and costs now i have interviewed firms that haven't intended to sell but did so eventually but it took them much longer and they generally did so for a lower multiple so number one is planning and even if you don't want to sell you need to still act as if you're going to sell. So you need to build the systems. You need to have developed the culture and all the rest of it because buyers want to buy a good consulting firm. There are exceptions to that rule, and I can talk about those later if you want. They want to buy a good consulting firm. And so whether you want a management buyout or you want to float it on the stock exchange, as, as Stephen Newton at Elixir did, or you want to sell to private equity or you want to sell to another consulting firm, you need this plan. Uh, because otherwise, uh, otherwise you, you coast. Uh, number two, having partners. 
I haven't interviewed any firms that have grown and sold that haven't done it without a partner, um, at least one. And partner, sorry, in the consulting sense of another manager or as in a partner business? A partner in your firm. So you're, you're partnering up with someone legally um, who co-owns the firm. Now, this is a catch-22 because when you ask, when I've asked successful consultants what their re- regrets are, the third answer is, um, is partnering with the wrong person. Um, now, that doesn't mean that that partner wasn't crucial in getting them to where they are. That sometimes means that, you know, they're a bit too hasty to go with the partner or the relationship soured after a period of time or they just don't like each other much anymore. But having a partner is, does seem to be uh, crucial. Another crucial thing, certainly once you start to grow, is focusing on your culture. Small consultancies face a very difficult challenge, which is how do you attract someone that might otherwise go to McKinsey? And because you don't have the brand name, you don't have the reputation, and it's a risk. Now, you may say, well, we wouldn't be recruiting the type of person that wants to go to McKinsey because they're the type of person that is probably risk averse, which is fair enough. But how do you recruit anyone at all? Well, you, you need to establish a culture and you need to be able to sell that culture. And that culture is not just, you know, that your your employees become sticky and want to stay with you and want to work hard, but also it's why clients want to work with you. You know, clients want to work with smaller consultancies because of the way they are, the unique value proposition, the alignment of, of values and things like that. So firms that really focused on, and quite a few firms said, we put our people first and our, our culture first and then our people and then the clients. And I've spoken to a couple of firms that say, if our employees aren't happy with clients, we will pull them out. And that keeps employees happy. It makes them work hard. It makes them more dedicated. But it also uh, creates a certain mystique in the in the market that you, you know, there's one firm I, I, I spoke to and they had a waiting list of clients who wanted to work with them simply wow. because they, you know, it's a self-referential system in terms of once it, there was word that there was a waiting list, everybody wanted to work with them. So the waiting list got longer and longer, and they, they were very successful. I guess as you start to grow, once you get to around the 20 or 30 mark, two important things need to happen. The first is that you need to systematize and codify. Once you get to a team of 25, it's incredibly hard for you to be on top of everything. Fortunately, there's wonderful PSA, they call it, professional services automation software out there now, uh, things like Avaza. You know, people would have killed for this stuff uh, in 20 years ago because it saves you time. It automates so mm. much. It connects all the data. So getting in something like that is fairly crucial. The other important thing that needs to happen is, uh, and we're moving here to the individual rather than the firm, is around their mindset, is that they need to be able to let go. And I have seen this so many times where you have a founder who is an outstanding, has built the firm, they've been involved in all the decisions, and it's all about them. They've got the relationships. And either it plateaus at a certain size because they try to get bigger, but the founder simply can't let go of the reins, or it collapses back in on itself because they end up doing bad work because the founder is stretched too thinly. So the ability to let go, to delegate, to coach people, to train them up, to take the responsibility is absolutely crucial so I, I mean i could go on there's there's probably 30 things I, I i kind of when i'm coaching now i almost have this checklist that i go through not that all consultancies that are successful do everything on this checklist this is really a, a crucial point is that it's not that difficult to grow a consulting firm and sell it 
I mean, it is difficult, but it's not that difficult. The difficult thing is doing it well. Mm. It's doing it in a way that where you don't have a nervous breakdown, where you haven't alienated your family, uh, where your employees still like like you. And by going through this checklist, you can just, it's kind of a self-reflection thing, you know, mm. like go through the checklist with people and, you know, assess them on, diff- on different levels and then just say, well, you know, wh- what do you think about your culture? You know, who, who leads it? Do you think it's consistent? Do you seek employee feedback and this type of stuff? So, so two of those founder things is uh, number one, creating the systems to support mm. you so that you, you know, you're not running your company off five different spreadsheets. And number two, having the ability to, to, to delegate. I think, Joe, that's a fantastic summary. And I'll ask a few more, but I don't want to ask too much because I don't want to take away from the book. I'd also, I don't know if you give it out, I'd love to get a copy of the checklist. Um, if it's public, I'll put it on the show notes. If it's private, and I appreciate it, would love to see if you're willing to share. But I, I think some really key points in there. And I, I think the fascinating thing to what you've said is the way you came about, you know, you didn't just come up with these, you didn't sort of hypothesize about them. This is, you know, cold, hard, first-hand research heard from people who have, you know, who have done these. And also to your point around, it's not everyone. I kind of, I subscribe to former consultant as well, Richard Koch, the 80-20 principle. The, if it's good, you know, some will get by other ways, but I'll bank on following the 80% that's worked. So this is fantastic. And I, I, you, you teased with a, a little bit of it in terms of who you've interviewed, not as in, I'm not going to ask you to name the companies, but we focused on there, the sort of people who have who've sold. And I guess just holding on that side of the journey, you, you mentioned around what they need to do to be successful. You've also talked to buyers of consulting firms. So I'm inferring a mix there, everyone from PE through to you know other consulting firms. This might be a short answer, and if it is, we'll move quickly. But what did they say they look for? Was it just everything you've just said as an outsider? Or maybe the better question is, what is it that when they have bought consulting firms has either put them off or lowered the multiple? What are the things that actually alienate buyers that anyone listening really needs to be focusing on as their sort of top one, two or three things to fix if they want to sell? Sure. Okay. I've had a few people come to me. And to be honest, like once it gets to the sales side of things, that's the limit of my capability. I'm in, I'm in no position at all to advise firms on on the detailed, you know, financial preparation yeah. that you to do for a, a walkthrough um, before you get before before the sale happens. Ha- however, I have had people come to me and say, <laughs> you know, we, we've got this firm. It turns over X. Uh, we think we can achieve Y in the market. And then you look at the details of the firm. You just think no buyer is going to be interested in this. You have no systems without you as founders. This firm is worth nothing. And that, that's the key thing that, that founders are, are concerned about. It's when the talent walks out the door, do you have anything left? So they, they love commodified products. They love licenses. They love online courses. They love methodologies. They love any assets that are in the firm. And by assets or intellectual property, I also mean the systems and procedures that you have in place. Mm. So, you know, if, if you have systems for the sale process or the proposal process or the delivery process, all of that is intellectual property that is part of the firm mm. um, so that if the worst happens and, you know, it's a massive risk for a buyer, you know, even, even if you've got an earnout period for, you know, 20 people in the firm, they may all think, well, let's leave and start off something, start up something completely different because we don't like this company. Mm. What do they do? They lose out. So they're looking for those, for those assets. Buyers are looking, I mean, I, I could talk about this uh, forever and I'm quite happy to, but typically, they're looking for a minimum of 5 million revenue. They're looking for uh, 20, 20% margins. As a minute, By margins, I mean EBITDA mm. rather than straight margins. 
they're looking for low turnover in terms of staff. They're basically looking for a mix of qualitative and quantitative measures. What I find with a lot of firms is they tend to focus on the quantitative. They think because our margins are X and because our revenue is Y, therefore we are worth Z. It's simply not the case. Um, The number one thing that buyers look for, especially strategic buyers, consulting firms, is that they will have a very specifically shaped gap. And that gap needs to be filled. And it might be a geographical gap. It might be a service gap. It might be a sector gap. But it means that very often when buyers are looking, they will go to an intermediary and say, we need to find a medium-sized consulting firm in France that specializes in supply chain management strategy that focuses on the automotive sector. And you're like, oh, right, okay. So this is one of the things where what buyers are looking for differs from what a good consulting firm might be. Because a good consulting firm with a, with a solid base might be in several sectors. It might have several different services. It might operate in several different geographies. Sometimes, and not always, a buyer will come and say, this is all very good, but we're only interested in this specific part of your business. So you can sell off the rest to someone else, but we want this part. So one thing I would I would definitely stress to founders is very early on, have a look around the market at who's buying and what type of firms they're buying in your in your area, because there's nothing worse than building a highly successful consulting firm that no one wants to buy. And another thing is, is the, and reflecting that is the niche that you're in. I mean, every everyone wants to buy. You know, if if you're doing artificial intelligence consulting now, you can have ten people. In fact, I have seen ten people straight out of university doing AI stuff. They have no systems, they have no processes, they're not particularly good at sales, but they can charge a fortune. And and buyers with those types of firms, they're buying up the people rather than the firm. I mean, the people are absolutely cool there. They want to say that we've got these 10 Harvard graduates who understand AI, you know, are, are, are gods at it. And then they let them loose on, on their on their company. So it's really thinking strategically about what services you're going to be offering and who will be able to cross-sell those services to their existing clients. So mm. quite early on, it's thinking about what the buyers want and moving moving in that direction. Some really good points. And I think that you know what you said there around the balance of qualitative and quantitative you know, strikes me as key because yes, you hear in, in the market so often, you know, when a deal's done, it's X multiple, it's you know, it's Y revenue. And actually it's the qualitative that underpins that. And to your point, I, we could spend all day and again, partly because of our time, but also partly because I don't want to rob people of the book. This is this is another myth that we should pop is that I, I think my book with Oxford for students, I think it retails for £36. I think I get maybe £1.50 for every, for every copy. So I'm more than happy to share share information uh, <laughs> about the book. But on, on your point about qualitative, yeah, it's crucial because good buyers prioritize the qualitative over the quantitative because so many deals fail because there's incompatible cultures or values and that will be a priority is having a clear statement of of values uh, and and acting those out through through the culture and the people that you train and employ you've teed me up nicely for the the last area i wanted to touch on from the people you spoke about because you mentioned there about the failures and you know it's no criticism you know sadly some businesses don't work out for whatever reason and and you mentioned earlier about one of the key reasons that businesses fail is a, a misalignment of the partners. You know, they they don't get on or they fall out at some point. Again, if this is just a, the inverse of everything you've said, we can move on. But what are some of those, again, characteristics that stick out, the businesses that failed? What are the three top reasons why taking partnership as one? What are the other two? Sure. Okay. Well, 
with within failure, I'm going to also include companies that still exist, but the founders hate them or just aren't fulfilled working in them. And that is more common than most people think is that, you know, pe- people are there's a there's a pride thing once you've created something it's your baby um no one likes their baby to be called ugly and and one of the great things about being in my position is that i can say when a baby is ugly i can say when something is a, is a bad idea and that they'd be crazy to go ahead with it but you see that quite often where where they haven't pivoted where you know somebody is still doing business process re-engineering work you know 20 years after the fact and they haven't rebranded it as lean or they haven't rebranded it as agile or 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 whatever and so they're still on these relatively low rates they're still going through procurement and every day is a slog and an anxiety and so i I guess the inability to pivot to rebrand yourself and reinvent yourself when the market requires it and ideally before the market requires it is is crucial and aversion to risk is another one. And quite, you know, a lot of people who come from the corporate background, you know, they take the big jump, be independent, but they don't, the big one is they don't want to employ people. So they see that as a massive risk. Now, you have to remember that the, the, the small consultancy market grows at 20% a year. So it's growing five wow. times faster than the large. So even if you're just keeping up with the market, that 20% growth of your firm you know, and of course, you know, you get you get the occasional disaster. I mean, we're in one now uh, for mm. consulting, um, COVID. But that is, you know, it, it's not once in a lifetime. But if you look at the consultancy growth figures, there is only two periods in the last 50 years that there has been a dip in growth. And that is now. And it's the 2008 recession. Now, some depending on the figures, some people say 2000, 2000 uh, crash as well, but depends on, on the figure that you look at. So, so you know, it, it's, a, it's a good horse to bet on. So this aversion to risk is something that I, I see a lot. And people, you know, they, they use associates and that's fine, um, but they avoid the employees for, for various reasons. And, and some of those are very good reasons, but sometimes if it's an aversion to risk, then, you know, you're not going to grow as fast as you might like. What else? Uh, what did, I forgot the question. What did you ask me? Uh, so it was about the the commonalities in those failures, or to your point, and I really like the the inclusion of you know, firms where the founder has fallen out of love with it. You know, where the joy of the business is now a, a chain. So yes, we've got partnerships. We've got that risk point. Any others? And if not, don't worry. Well, one one more. I mean, there's 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 quite a few, but there's one more which is just doing the wrong thing. So, you know, everyone and their dog is doing leadership and change coaching and that that type of stuff. And, you know, why not branch out a little bit? Why not experiment? Why not, you know, do something a little bit unusual? There's a wonderful company that I've been involved with for a long time, run by Deborah Fleming, called Chameleon Works. And, you know, she's she's done the leadership coaching and she's done the change management, uh, the work, and she's very good. And she is a big wine buff. And she has started, and she started it several years ago, and it's been incredibly successful. She's combined MBTI personality testing and wine tasting. And I've actually helped her on, on several of these of these courses. And they're fantastic. You get a load of senior executives turning up. You give them some wine. They all get a bit tipsy. You give them a lovely meal. And then you throw in some coaching. You know, you talk to them about the design. You talk to them about how would you describe this wine versus... And so it's, you know, that experiment has worked for her. She's got a branded, commodified, profitable product that she loves delivering. And it's unusual. 
there, there's a wonderful woman called uh, Susan on. Uh, she she's this, she styles herself as a as a data guru on LinkedIn, and it's fantastic. She's got this. <laughs> you you look at her videos, and she's got this sort of glittery streams behind her, and and she just tells it like it is. And her following is is massive. So there's a lot of reasons why people fail. One of them is that they listen to bad advice. There's a huge amount of bad advice out there, very often given by people who think that consultancy is coaching. And they believe that if you create a, a funnel and you know spend a lot on Facebook advertising, you're going to have a successful consulting business. Although that strategy can supplement consultancy is different from coaching marketing simply because it's much more about personal relationships and yeah I, I think there's there's a lot of advice especially coming out of the states mm. um, with sort of internet gurus who spend a fortune on on and you in fact this is your area isn't it you you'll know these well just to clarify my area is not internet guru ship but i know that's not what you're saying joe <laughs> I meant, I, yes, yes, sure. I, I, I meant you, you know, you'll know these people because uh, you're, you're, yeah. you're a credible expert in this area. And you'll know that some of the advice that's been churned out is, is bad. And some of these people are charging a fortune for it. But because they've got the shtick and the salesman patter, pe- people pay for it. And I'll, I'll very often meet people who have spent, you know, tens of thousands of pounds mm. on online courses that sounded very credible but actually did it delivered very little value yeah and and i mean i agree with you entirely on on the point and actually it's interesting because i think it ties in hand in hand with the point you made around i mean it's ultimately risk-taking but that point around niche you know i've just looked up i've just looked up susan actually and i've just sent her a connection request on linkedin because everything she's doing is you know to your point you know, ultimately you have to take risk and part of that is taking a niche you know i've lost count of the, the amount of transformation consultancies there are out there and no one's going to get excited about transformation but to your point with susan you know actually carving that niche is so powerful and that then talks to what you've said as well you know the the marketing side of, of positioning that's critical but i think you said it way back at the start when we started talking about your book is with any advice in life you've got to think about what benefit does someone get out of this themselves and if the sole benefit is to sell you a course you know there's a question mark and that's always the right question you know the i can't remember where i got it from and who i'm robbing it from but you know the ultimately if you look at the you know, where the pounds go you'll see what incentivizes that motivation you know to your point around sort of truth and and fake news look at whose bonus it hits whose profit and that's where it goes and i think you're you're spot on joe and you know it's partly why books like the one you're writing really excite me you know why i said earlier about you know doing one myself from this series is just you can learn from advice and insight and for someone like yourself where you know unless you're going to have an advert for the mba in the back of it there isn't a, an axe to grind there isn't an agenda and actually people can learn a ton from it so and last question on that do you have a date for publication where are we in in that so the book will be out probably in june next year if not before i don't i don't want to over over promise and uh, un, under deliver I, I will have finished writing the book by Christmas. Apparently, it takes publishers six months to press print. I'm hoping it will be out uh, by Easter, uh, but if not, it will be out at least at least by June. Yeah, it's it's, it's quite. I mean, to be honest, it's quite. It's getting on for seventy thousand words now. So I'm thinking of writing another book that's perhaps more tailored to a, you know to people who don't have you know lots of time for reading. So I'll probably publish the big one because it, it's it's. I use research. I, you know, it's not just coming from my head. I use research. And so, you know, really? I, 
that I guess I, I want it to appear and be credible. But I, I, I'll probably write a 20,000 word version. That's, uh, that's for people that are time pressed. Well, Joe, as a, as a man who records one to two hour podcasts, I'm firmly in your 70,000 word camp. And, you know, slightly, maybe many people will disagree with me. But I think if you can't be bothered to read the 70,000 word version, and it's your your business you're putting on the line, maybe you should reassess the business you're running. But that's, uh, you know, who am I to judge? And I think then, Joe, so firstly, we should put in when you do release it, we should do around two, because I'd love to having read it, have a proper conversation about it and really dig into some of those, not least because and I'm only share, I'm only not saying it because I know it's not my story to tell is some of your interviewees are guests who have been on this podcast. So it'd be great fun to do a uh, compare and contrast when you've got the book released. But the last questions, and again, as someone who's listened to this show, you will know what's coming here. These are the wrap-up questions that I ask all of my guests. And the first question I have to give a, no- a caveat to that I don't normally, because the first question is, what book or books do you recommend most? And I'm going to take it as read that you would recommend your own books first, which are welcome to tell people what they are. But I would love to get a recommendation beyond your own as well. I'd recommend the book that's coming out. I wouldn't recommend most of what I've written now um, for, for, for most consultants because it's generally aimed at students or academics and, and therefore is unreadable. I mean, I, I'm tempted to, you know, I guess repeat. I mean, I, I'm an avid listener to your podcast. I don't know if you know this, but I've, I've listened to everything you've given. I think, partly, I mean, partly it's my research area, but you do this really well. And you are in, I hope you don't mind me blowing smoke, but... You're a refreshing change to the the kind of um, uh, American salesy type that I spoke about earlier. It's it's lovely to engage with somebody that is knowledgeable, intelligent, uh, honest, and and credible as well. And I, as, as someone that you know has done a lot of digging in this, I, I so I, I yeah I've, I've listened to all of your stuff at least once. Um, wow, thank you. And again, that's relevant to the question because I'm tempted to repeat some of the things that people have said before. I think the the e myth is is very good. Um, I think there's you know, but but people will have said this, and and to some extent, if people haven't read this stuff now, then they're probably not going to read it because I told them to. I would suggest perhaps going for some of the non-consulting books. So uh, as I say, I'm a historian by training, and I think looking at the bigger picture occasionally in life is is quite good. So if, if you're feeling, I always say to people, if, if you're in a tough time, and COVID is a tough time, and this recession is is tough, always read Russian history, because they've, they've had it so tough. I mean, seriously, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So so the, the books I would recommend would be something in history, perhaps something like the uh, uh, the Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago is one of my favourites. Um, if this is a man by Primo Levi, or even something I read I read quite quite recently, which is the the, the Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. Those are three books that put things into perspective. So, you know, I'm pleased I studied history, um, and what, one of the reasons for that is that it does put into perspective what we are going through now and so i know there's a lot of people out there who are struggling but if you if you read these books you realize how lucky you are no i i love those recommendations joe and we'll put all of those in the show notes and i think you know quite frankly given things going on across the world if you are in any consulting job you are already in the one percent and you know you're just going into the decimal places as you promote up the industry so i completely agree with that and then the very last question and and this is a wrap-up and i'd love your advice for it is you've got three people in front of you 
You've got a graduate, maybe someone just leaving your class. You've got someone who's sort of early in their career, say four or five years, you know, manager level, let's say. And you've got someone who is is approaching that partnership point, you know, their director in one of these firms, probably some of the friends you you spoke about earlier. And you know what's coming because you've listened to all of this. The simple question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each? Okay, so I, I guess there's an overarching piece of advice, which is ask for advice. It's something I continue to do. And I, I reckon there's so much advice out there. You don't necessarily have to hire a coach if you can't afford it. But getting advice from a variety of people who have experience about the things that you're concerned about is the number one thing. And with the internet, there's just so much of it available. More specifically with, with the graduate, I would encourage them to, to lighten up, to experiment, to leave jobs that they are unhappy with or feel exploited in. I mean, consulting has become, you know, even in the last 10 years, utilization rates have, have, have gone up, you know, 10%. They're kind of averaging 90% now, which is crazy and unsustainable. So I, I would say, you know, ex- experiments, you know, you've got your whole life ahead of you, um, make mistakes while you're young. And if you're not happy, do something about it. If you ever want a, a, a laugh or, and a cry at the same time, read the Reddit consulting. Uh, <laughs> because, it, I mean, it, it's absolutely revealing about what young people in consulting are, are thinking. Um I must, I know know this is your answer, Joe, but I also want to add there are plenty of meme accounts on Instagram which show exactly the same thing. Some of the the things that are deemed acceptable enough to put in a meme show some of the working practices, let's say that. Um, For the person that has been, so I'll be more sensible, functional with this one. So with the person that's been in for a few years, to to get on in consulting is around sales Mm. uh, and and, you know, as you go up the organization, you will do so because of your ability to sell. And that is uh, very much based upon your network. So no matter what stage you are at, you should be looking at. But also you should, you know, I always say to my students, once you're in, get your CV out every six months because you never know what's going to happen. And again, don't don't feel tired. It's more difficult with the people in the middle because they mm. have the children very often or they have the big mortgage or, you know, they're getting used to the lifestyle, so it can be a bit tougher. With partners, I wouldn't presume to give partners advice. However, I guess partners or seniors that are thinking of starting up by themselves, mm. uh, I guess is something that I, I can talk to, people that have perhaps left or even been made redundant. My advice is to choose your niche carefully and accumulate expertise. Mm. people forget that your ability to charge high margins as a solo or small consultant is dependent upon the value that you provide Mm. you provide is dependent upon your ability to accumulate and improve your expertise and knowledge some of that is around capturing data and and experience and codifying it in templates or systems or processes and displaying it as thought thought leadership or mm. link post, depending on your preference. Some of it is about investing in yourself and going on that training course and taking the time out to read and think and discuss ideas. So yeah, so does that loosely cover? Does that loosely cover them? Yeah, no, it it definitely covers them. And I think some really good advice. And I I really like Joe the the way you you put what sometimes can sound very complex into a very simple structure. And exactly like you said there. If you decide to go out on your own, you want, or even a small firm, you, you have to do something. You have to keep yourself up to date because the world moves so quickly. Even in you know 
the same thing just changes name and it means a different thing but you have to keep up to date with that if you want to stay and like you say charge the fees etc that you want so no really good joe some great advice in there and really enjoyed this conversation i know we've had a few chats sort of over the last few months and it's been really good getting your take on you know both the graduate side and and the sort of consulting side and to your point you know you don't have an axe to grind so you've been very very open and you know honest and candid in this and it's been great to get some of that perspective as well so as you know again you know being an avid listener the last thing for me to ask is for anyone who has listened to this and they want to find out more about yourself they want to find out about consulting mastered whether they're a you know a graduate or undergraduate or they're a, a consulting sort of partner who wants to look to grow their firm where would you point them to where can they get in touch so you can email me at joe at consultingmaster.com or you can literally if you put joe omani or joe o'mahoney as the americans would say into google I think the first three pages, sadly, are, are all my face. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> so I'm but, easily found. Fantastic, Joe. Well, I'll put links to all of that, your email address, your websites, all of the books in the show notes. As you say, your, your, sort of, your main text is a textbook, but I'll put it in there in case anyone does want to pick that up. And we'll definitely have to get around to him when the, the new book becomes available. So otherwise, all that's left to say is, is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you. And thank you for your time and this opportunity. It's been really nice talking to you as ever. Thanks a lot, Joe. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk. And I really look forward to hearing from you.